You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. In 1861, the Brooklyn Eagle expressed sadness over an aspect of the recent secession of the southern states. They are leaving the Union and taking the country's best pine with them. Indeed, southern pine, pitch pine, slash pine, was some of the best wood available, the top of the quality pyramid for lumber at this time. And during the Civil War, these trees were felled in unusually large numbers. Such was war. They became fortifications, corduroying roads, turning mud into walkable surface, axed for temporary housing, used for firewood, or if they weren't cut down, blasted by bullets and destroyed by cannonball. Sometimes, they were just set on fire to give the enemy a problem in their camp. General Longstreet once told a soldier, turn on the heat in the enemy. And the Union Army was famous for destroying, by the war's end, not just the Southern Army, but the Southern will to fight, which often meant destroying landscape. People with long memories gasped at the removal of beautiful woods, ancestral landmarks, beautiful places, that they had grown up in, that their grandfathers had grown up in. Both sides did it, but the Union Army was usually larger and required more supplies. Stafford County, Virginia became a treeless tundra. 200 acres were removed around Fredericksburg, Virginia, where the Federal Army held its winter quarters one year. Areas of Tennessee were almost unrecognizable to those returning. Trees were not only often the markers of people using for directions to go visit a friend's house and know they were on the right path. They could even be used in some legal documents in very rural areas as to where a certain person's land began or not. Trees might have names. During the Civil War, many of these trees met their fate, where once there was a forest, there might just be mud, barren land, stumps. And maybe the occasional survivor reaching up into the sky. Philip Sheridan, Union General, was told to burn the Shenandoah Valley in September 1864. Eat Virginia clear as far as they go, his supervisor told him. His supervisor was Ulysses S. Grant. Clear it so that crows flying will have to carry their provender with them. Here's what a New York officer said. Woods when we came here were so thick, 
We could not get through them. They were literally stripped of their timber. Tens, sometimes a hundred axemen would be sent out in the head of the Union Army. Pioneers, they called them. Both armies used these. Axemen that would be used to clear roads, to provide firewood. It was a tough assignment, swinging an axe, trying to increase production, felling as many trees as they can. But some Union soldiers and Confederate soldiers had experience clearing trees. Some liked the exercise, the break, from the boredom of camp. An article in the Macon Telegraph said that the army resembled a wild beast or monster that took huge quantities of lumber wherever it traveled. An army is a great gourmand, and wherever it rests, the noblest forest and pastures soon fade from sight in the capricious swallow of the monster. At the Battle of First Bull Run, Confederate physician D.B. Conrad represented the trees on the scene as mangled. At Shiloh in 1862, soldiers watched giant trees twist in the gunfire until their limbs thudded to the ground. These scenes in which flying shells cut everything in their path and ruined great stretches of woods were both terrifying and grand, northern soldier Lucius Barber remarked. Now, some soldiers were noticing in their journals. We cut down a woods in a day, said Private John Smith of the 18th Pennsylvania. You have no idea the damage an army can do. It's worse than seven-year locusts. A Connecticut officer said that there were so few trees left, they were cutting the second crop. That means the stumps that they had left on the previous foraging was now being cut and anything growing from them. During the wilderness battle, A member of the 4th U.S. Artillery, Wilkerson, said, Small limbs of trees were falling in a feeble shower in advance of me. It was though an army of squirrels were at work, cutting off pine cone-laden branches. Bursting shells would also not only hit trees, hit branches, destroy them, but also start fires that would then destroy more trees. On November 30th, 1864, at the Battle of Franklin, A small grove of about locust trees, most of them about the size of a common bedpost. These little trees were literally cut to pieces by bullets. Some of them were not as large as a man's body, had 50 and 60 bullet marks. A reward of $25 has been offered by several officers to any person who will find in that grove a tree or limb five feet long, which has not been struck by a bullet. Yet when a tree survived, it could provide safety and comfort. Hiram Johnson on the battlefield in the Union side talked about how a single tree provided a sense of security during a bombardment. He wrote, Everyone sought the friendly shelter of a tree where I, not to be outdone by the old veterans, listened to the bursting of shells in fancied security. Trees had many benefits. Absorbing water that would otherwise be mud that would make it hard for armies to traverse. They provided food. The berries of these trees were very important. One southern soldier remarked, The North trying to starve us might as well starve a black hog in them piney woods. There were lots of berries to eat. 
the bark of the trees could be used for medicinal purposes. There is even um, a beverage that could be made from the fermented pine that both armies started using. They could also house a soldier. Very often, housing was made for officers' barracks if they were planning to stay a long time, soldiers' barracks. Sometimes these were made and then the army moved, so the wood was completely wasted. They could feed the army, providing fuel for their coffee and for their gruel and other food. They could hide movement. Trees, when not felt, could be a force multiplier for an army that moved fast, moved secretly, and knew the area. This was mostly the Confederates. During Chancellorsville, the use of trees was very important because Lee had split up his army and had to rely on confusing the Union General Hooker so that he thought that Lee had more men than he had. Without those timbers in the way, it would have been impossible. Trees could even stop a cavalry charge, as spikes could be made out of them. They also used it to fortify trenches, particularly towards the end of the war. Corduroying a road was a very particular use. When a road was too muddy, placing lobs perpendicular to the road would allow people, animals, wheels to go across what otherwise would be a muddy mess. But it certainly used a lot of woods. I mean, sometimes armies had to clear paths. So they had to clear trees just to make a clear path the army could go through. But if you're talking about road corduroying, now you're talking about needing to chop down trees just for the army to move forward at all. In McClellan's Peninsular Campaign in Virginia, some of the area was so swampy, it was the only way the army could move. And it was part of McClellan's miscalculation, just couldn't have his army move fast enough. Even the most basic use of firewood is different when an army's doing it. Here's Private William Payton of the 21st New Jersey writing to his wife. You can imagine the size of these fires when I tell you that we use as much wood as you could put in a cart in one fire one night. Our regiment will perhaps burn 50 loads every day. There wasn't really much debate. The Scott Manual, one of the key manuals of war, made it clear the forest was for the use of human beings. The war goals were more important than thinking about trees. The more war, the more destruction. Spotsylvania County was deforested, as it had so many battles. It's a civil war. There's such big things to talk about. The movement of armies. The issues involved. Slavery. The Union. The state power versus the federal power. Jefferson Davis, Abraham Lincoln, General Lee, Ulysses S. Grant. Such big things to talk about that trees didn't end up in much of the discussion really till recently. Uh, I'm reading a great book, uh, Joan Cashin's War Stuff, The Struggle for Human and Environmental Resources in the American Civil War. And armies raided houses, sometimes torched houses took food, took pigs and cattle from people. Armies also destroyed fences for firewood, stole timber supplies from citizens. There were rules applying to both armies. Some of these were late in coming, you know, 62, 1862, 1863. They were supposed to compensate citizens for what they took. This rarely occurred. If people complained very often, this is the case. Cases are documented in Tennessee and Kentucky. Houses were simply burnt down if they complained too much. Many a Unionist or Confederate sympathetic woman was turned by the barbaric actions of the armies. I mean, for more about the totality of that, I would read Cashin's book. 
damage by war is almost incalculable, something like the American Civil War. But it's a story to be calculated. I can't help to notice that some of the historians recently doing this are ecologists and that many of them are female, looking at issues of like what it was like to be a civilian in the war or what was the damage done to trees. Troops in both armies began to comment in 1862 on the war's destructive impact on the physical environment. They noted the acres of stumps left behind by the troops and the standing trees devoid of bark. Soldiers in both armies castigated the enemy for threatening or damaging the countryside. Wherever it transpired, deforestation killed off wildlife, mammals, birds, amphibians, and fish, and created what people described as vistas with an unsettling, far-reaching silence. Even more so on mountain slopes, including the mountains surrounding Chattanooga, where the Federal Army cut down most of the timber in the fall of 1863. All in all, some 400,000, it is estimated, was cleared for the use of the armies for firewood alone, and for all the other purposes, 2 million. To put this in perspective, that's more than the distance between Portland, Maine, and Los Angeles, California, of trees cut down, not in an age of great mechanical technology, but cut down largely by hand. Two million trees were cleared. But no one gave much thought to this. The environmental movement was coming. It wasn't here quite yet. You had, for instance, Edward Ruffin, who would be in the Confederate Army, but before that had been an advocate of using land properly, conserving nature. And as this war is happening, a young Scottish-American whose family recently immigrated, his brother had gone to Ontario from Wisconsin to avoid the war's draft. And John Muir also joined him. He hiked the Bruce Trail near the Niagara Escarpment a large, steep slope besides the river, and saw what had to be spectacular views, as they are today in many places, waterfalls and centuries-old coniferous trees, pinecone-bearing, seed-bearing perennials on the limestone lip. He sat among the trees and must have thought, we must preserve this, unaware, perhaps, of the torching and piercing going on to the south of him, but aware that he'd dedicate his life to preserving woods. His ally in this, a future president, was just five years old. And Mira wasn't in a place where he could help the destruction either at this point. We should be clear here that it's not just the Civil War. The South was already destroying its forest, and it had been maybe for a thousand years. Typically, to clear land for farming, you would burn down the pines. You'd cultivate that cleared field for a few years, and then you'd abandon it. Because if you kept using it, it wouldn't produce crops. Trees would grow in the place of the ones that you burnt down, but not the great pines. There wouldn't be enough time. There would be young loblolly pines. And these would be set ablaze again to use that field again in four or five years. These methods go back to Native American times, and the South had been degrading its own forest for many years. And after the war, post-war agriculture 
new railroads, uh, advanced timber cutting techniques that were used out in the Pacific Northwest being brought back home. Companies like the Weyerhaeuser Company perfecting their skills in the Pacific Northwest would then, after the Civil War, see all of this still remaining wood in Virginia, West Virginia, the Carolinas, and grab it. The West is growing. And while in the Pacific Northwest, in California, there's many trees, in the middle of the country, this is dry land, and yet you need houses, you need school buildings, barns, all the things that provide sustenance for farmers who were moving out there, wood had to be brought in. And a lot of it came from the South. So the South is providing the wood after the war to populate the West. So we shouldn't just say this was part of the Civil War, the destruction of trees. Not all the trees were felled. The white oak is still there in Manassas National Battlefield near the Stone Bridge. And if it could talk, it would know of two Civil War battles. It was an important spot. Both the Union and Confederate troops wanted it. Trees were decimated, but this tree and several others survive. They are dubbed witness trees, and they are evident that not everything was destroyed. The so-called Burnside Sycamore on the Antietam battlefield, where this tree lay witness to that general's ordered assault against dug-in Confederates across a narrow stone bridge, where 600 soldiers died in the Civil War's most bloody day. Many trees were hit in the crossfire, but this sycamore survived to be photographed several days later when Alexander Garner shows up to take photos of this bridge. Comments about if this tree could talk are so common that guides no longer hear them anymore. Yet, this is the point. While they cannot talk, they provide a great living connection and put us in our place uh, so is the same with Sickles Oak on the Trustle Farm at Gettysburg. It was 75 years old already at the time of the battle, and it remains, along with the buildings of the Trustle Farm. They even helped to raise money. Here's an article from the early 90s. Jacksonville, Florida, several living witnesses still survive from the 1863 battlefield of Gettysburg and President Abraham Lincoln's famous address. Those witnesses are trees that sustained shell and bullet damage on the Civil War battlefield. Mute survivors of the horror of the battle that broke the back of the Confederacy. As the movie Gettysburg is being released, descendants of those famous trees are being sold to save one of America's most famous battle sites and other historic battlegrounds. The Washington-based Civil War Trust is joined with the American Forest's famous and historic trees to sell seedlings from witness trees from the famous Pennsylvania battlefield. Seeds are collected from witness trees and then grown in three nurseries in Florida and sold to raise money for historic trusts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. 
You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if... Instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world. If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. Something else. Ten witness trees from the James River, trees that were around for the Civil War, simply didn't get cleared or didn't get hit or hit hard enough with bullets, were there in the 1970s and the 1980s as something else in more modern Ecological history occurred, something more positive, after the 1972 ban on DDT, which weakened, among many things, the environment for eagles, particularly the bald eagle in this area, weakened their eggshells. The bald eagle began a recovery from just 417 nests in 1963. There was estimated 71,000 in the U.S. in 2017. Eagles prefer to nest in very high trees, and trees like Big Boy, a specific tree off the James River, witness to battles, was helpful in recreating the habitat of the bald eagle in Virginia. In Acomic County, Virginia, which saw the occupation of Virginia by Union forces, a tree that lived well into the 1990s supplied countless eagles their nests. Historian Megan Kate Nelson, who computed some of the statistics that we have on the number of trees estimated cut down during the Civil War was interviewed on the Ben Franklin's World podcast, which I must say is a member of the Airwave Media Network that we are part of as well, and talked about indirect effects like forests in Maine, far from any Civil War battlefield, were being destroyed for good woods, for railroad ties, for Northern armies. So even though there's very little destruction in the northern side, a little bit in Maryland and Pennsylvania during the Civil War, they're using resources wherever lumber is needed, it's coming from somewhere. After having published her book, Ruin Nation, and computing that there were at least two million trees destroyed, talked with more forest experts, and her current prediction is up to four million trees destroyed during the Civil War. Akashian, again, 
The psychological impact of deforestation was equally profound. Trees played a role in community memory for many reasons. Trunks were sometimes inscribed with the names of local people. Residents in Culpeper County, Virginia, felt devastated to see totems of childhood destroyed. And they gave vent to outbursts of sorrow as northern troops chopped down, as northern troops chopped down their cedars. As the Union Army cut down woods to build fortifications near his Tennessee residence, John Spence found the resulting wasteland ugly and disorienting. The original landmarks obliterated for miles in every direction. A member of the Tennessee family Murphree, the writer Mary Murphree, was in her early teens during the war, and these experiences left a damp, a deep imprint on her young mind. A novel that she wrote, set in Tennessee in the year 1871, begins with a featureless landscape still ravaged by conflict, nary a tree, shrub, or even a fence in sight. Thus was the mind of people after the war, and an important way to look at war. It might be odd to say that uh, William Howard Taft, the president, is connected to television at all. He dies in 1930. But Taft's presidency and a particular event actually has a very significant impact on television, and his family would eventually is his um, get involved in broadcasting and later TV. We see William Howard Taft, if anything, it's the ridiculous bath story that he was stuck in a bath. We don't even believe this is true. It was a story that was told many years after his presidency, and that's what people mostly remember about Taft. And we've talked about Taft and his tariff battle and some of the legislation, but it should be important that he did get a few things through. And in 1910, Taft passes the Mann-Elkins Act. And this is a very significant piece of legislation. It would have been considered progressive at its time. It's a bipartisan bill that he passes. He needs to get Democrats to overcome the opposition of some of his conservative Republicans. Mann-Elkins is important because it regulates the rates of railroads and gives the Interstate Commerce Commission powers to do so. When the Interstate Commerce Act was passed during Grover Cleveland's administration, his attorney general made a point to tell business people, this law is passed mostly for cosmetic reasons. We're not, it's not something that can be enforced. It doesn't have a lot of teeth. Man Elkins and the Hepburn Act increased what the ICC could do. The Man Elkins Act takes it a step further. And it was developed in response to rate increases that Western Railroads announced in 1910. Man Elkins is important for this reason. It's the first federal law that authorizes the setting of maximum rates for an industry when there's no war going on, when there's no emergency. And it's done so that railroads could not do what they had been doing, which is give discounted rates to some customers and not others. 
They couldn't charge passengers more for a short trip compared to a longer ride over the same route. And it created a United States Commerce Court in order to adjudicate any railway disputes. If you want to appeal the decisions of the United States Commerce Court for railway disputes, you have to go directly to the United States Supreme Court. That's going to increase the speed of cases and make it harder. Um, you can't drag out companies and say, hey, if you want to sue us, we're the railroad. We can take it to court and tie you up forever. It reduced railroad rates across the board such that many um, railroads, in fact, by 1915, one-sixth of rail tracks in the country belonged to railroads in receivership. Elkins had already passed an act during the Roosevelt administration that stopped railroad companies from ordering rebates. Railroad corporations were um, and their employees were made liable for any discriminatory practices. So you're starting to see at the turn of the century railroads being the key target for legislation. And Westerners or even Midwestern senators and congressmen are the ones leading this legislation. Stanley Elkins is from Minnesota. Mann is from Illinois. There's some context for this legislation that's important to know. And one is that there's a battle going on in Congress where Speaker Joe Cannon, who had controlled things for a decade, nothing passed without his approval, is actually toppled by insurgents. He's actually remaining Speaker, but his control over the body is greatly reduced in a coalition between progressive Republicans and Democrats. Taft, true to form, doesn't get involved in congressional matters, but he has a side. He tells one of his friends, well, Archie, I think they have got the old fox this time. This meant that Taft could actually submit some legislation that he wanted to and not have to see it get bottled up in all the procedures that Joe Cannon could spin. But he still had an issue, and that is that there were some progressives, now insurgents, now very powerful in Congress, who wanted to get the credit for legislation they passed, not have the president get it. And there's an interesting explanation of this in a book. I just received this book. Excellent. Michael Bromley William Howard Taft in the first motoring presidency. Now, we're not going to talk about Taft riding around in cars, but it does talk about how he gets this passed. The issue was La Follette's baby railroad legislation. His fame in Wisconsin came of his fight with the railroads. Now in the Senate, he was going to fix the railroads for the entire nation. The insurgents, not wanting Taft's bill, so loaded the debate with amendments and poison pills that the bill almost died until Taft pulled pulled another audacious move. An association of Western roads announced in late May a rate increase. Congress be damned. Taft set his bulldog attorney general on them. Submit to the rules of the bill that he was proposing, Man Elkins, as yet not passed, he told them, or submit to the Sherman Act. So this is kind of audacious, right, for an attorney general to tell railroads to submit to a bill that hasn't yet passed Congress, but the leverage is coming from a bill that had already the Sherman Antitrust Act. In other words, if you don't reduce your rates to the Man-Elkins limits, we're going to 
Uh, and really what it is is not man Elkins limits. That's the wrong way to explain it. If you don't submit to ICC review of your rates, and in other words, don't make these hasty rates before the bill passes, we're going to investigate you for antitrust. The railroads backed off. The president's popularity spiked. The American Reviews of Reviews note. The American Review of Reviews noted, thus the bold step of the roads met by the equally bold action of the administration created a situation that practically compelled Congress to give the new pending Mann-Elkins bill its final touches. A few days later, the Senate shook itself free of the insurgent chokehold. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance, wherever you get your podcasts. But something else happens. As James Robert Mann, the congressman in the House of Representatives and the chairman of the committee pushing through this bill, sponsor of the bill, there's a clamor to add other things. It's about midway through the House debate on this bill, which is essentially a railroad bill, when an amendment was offered to include telegraph and telephone companies within the definition of common carriers to be regulated by the Interstate Commerce Act. There is no reason why these great instrumentalities of commerce should not be put within the permissions of the Interstate Commerce Act. And these necessary instrumentalities which the citizens have to use, which are monopolies in their particular lines of business, should be required to make reasonable charges. It's not that there are any particular abuses in the telephone and telegraph companies that are sought, but the argument, it appears, is that uh, if railroads are a common carrier of freight, so the telephone lines are a common carrier of the human voice. Chairman Mann, who wants to put through the uh, Elkins Mann Railroad Regulation Bill, is against adding this to the amendment. Despite his opposition, the amendments passed with relative ease after a short debate. Same thing happens in the Senate. It's kind of a cleanup. The the explanation in the Senate goes a little further. It's kind of cleanup. The telegraph and telephone companies are the only remaining public service corporations engaged in interstate commerce that aren't under the control of the ICC. All rates need to be just and reasonable and free from unjust discrimination to all carriers. Elkins man passes, and this is an accomplishment of the Taft presidency that often didn't get doesn't get talked about. And maybe it's because it requires legislation later to really enforce it. But this allows during World War One the federal government to take over the railroad system of the United States. It is after the war returned to private companies. That's the Ash Cummings Act of nineteen twenty one. But the Ash Cummings Act also combines this railroad regulation with communications regulation in adding telegraph, telephone, and the transmission of intelligence by wire or wireless. It now covers radio and broadcasting. In 1921, federal authorities expanded to give the ICC power 
to disapprove consolidations and mergers of telephone and telegraph companies. But if a merger would be of advantage to the persons or whom services rendered and in the public interest, in other words, is there an area that needs a station or needs coverage, if the ICC determined that, they could void antitrust. So Mans Elkins paves the way for the Communications Act of 1934. And this law consolidates Man Elkins and all the other laws affecting telephone and radio industries passed between then, between 1910 and 1934, and creates the Federal Communications Commission. So Taft doesn't create the FCC, but lays the groundwork for it. Prior to that, there was nothing that the federal government had to do with telephone uh, or telegraph communications. And that would mean as wireless devices were invented and perfected, there would have nothing to do with that either. Now, there's an interesting little twist here, and I don't think it's directly related because it doesn't have to do with President Taft himself, but rather his brother, Charles, Charles Phelps Taft. Now, Taft and Charles, William Howard Taft and Charles Taft are son of Alfonso Taft, who was a former Secretary of War and a, uh, a very important figure in Ohio. William Howard Taft never owns a radio station, a telephone company, or TV. certainly wouldn't even know what TV was. But in 1879, his brother Charles purchases two afternoon newspapers in Cincinnati, the Times and the Cincinnati Daily Star. He merges them together to the Cincinnati Times Star in 1880. Later, the son of half-brother to the president, Peter Rawson Taft, is the publisher of the newspaper, and he gets it also involved in broadcasting. That's Hulbert Taft Sr. In 1939, Radio Cincinnati, Inc. is formed, and it's backed by the Taft family. Cincinnati Times Star purchases WKRC Radio in Cincinnati. If it sounds a little funny, if you are you have that TV show in your head, I'm going to get to that in a second. Uh, in April 1949, Taft's first TV station, WKRC-TV, begins broadcasting. This is very early on. And in 1951, Radio Cincinnati acquires a 20% interest in a Knoxville, Tennessee station. Radio Cincinnati purchases WTVN-TV in Columbus, Ohio, which is now WSYX, and WHKC Radio in Columbus. The Taft family will be involved in one form or another in these TV stations until it's acquired by Carl Linder in the 1980s to become Great American Broadcasting. Taft Broadcasting is. And then uh, when he goes bankrupt, it's eventually acquired in 1999 by Clear Channel Communications, which is now iHeartMedia. So in a weird way, the Taft legacy is indirectly connected from newspapers to podcasting. Uh, one little note at the end here. Uh, so WKRC, you hear that and you're thinking, hey, is that the inspiration for WKRP? And it's kind of funny. So if you recall, and, and this might date myself and others, WKRP is about a station in Cincinnati that turns from what was called then MOR, or Middle of the Road Music. Lawrence Welk, think... Um, it's not middle of the road for the average American today. It's things like concerts and classical music, band tunes and the like, middle of the road music. And that station in WKRP turns into rock music. It's surprising its audience. And 
is WKRP based on WKRC? Not exactly. Not really at all. It was based more on a, a radio station that had been in Atlanta, WQXI, that was known for doing crazy things on the air. And there was a character, Skinny Bobby Harper, who talked in the way that Dr. Johnny Fever does on the show. But interestingly enough, WKRC was in middle-of-the-road music format at the time that the show was airing. And WKRC didn't mind at all that there was a station on TV, uh, WKRP in Cincinnati, very close to their name, that brought them a little news and publicity. WKRP, according to the show's creator, Hume, is was basically, uh, well, it's the, the call letters are crap. So the station was crap, right? And Cincinnati was chosen. They were thinking about Rochester for mostly the reason that uh, WKRP rhymes with Cincinnati. I'll sing it real quick. WKRP in Cincinnati. Doesn't seem like it's enough of a rhyme to warrant it, but uh, nonetheless. um, Now WKRC is um, 55KRC, and it has a talk show radio format. I want to thank you for listening. Uh, the website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Um, if you like the program, please tell someone about it in whatever form you can. Maybe you can write a review. iTunes, Podcast Addict. Maybe you can post something on your blog. Go on Twitter. We're at at myhist, M-Y-H-I-S-T. Or maybe you have your own podcast and you want to talk about mine. And, uh, and direct people here. Would love it. Um, visit us on the Facebook at My History Can Beat Up Your Politics discussion group. Thanks for listening. <laughs>